So I would start by rewriting your own narrative from scratch by understanding what your inner passions and desires are and doing a process like the Ikigai process or any kind of um, framework which allows you to uncover what your true inner desires are. Welcome to Hypercurious, a show where we celebrate making changes happen by following your curiosity. My name is Bita Luca. I'm a BAFTA winning CEO entrepreneur, and each week I dive into the most intriguing aha moments of my favorite authors, founders, and artists. Today I'm thrilled to chat with the incredible serial entrepreneur and founder of Beauty Stack and one of the most curious people I know, Sharma Dean Reed. In this episode, we talk about the best ways to contribute to the world when you have many interests and passions, the pressures that female founders have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, and why taking courses can fine-tune your worldview. Oh, and make sure you stick around for our game at the end of the episode. It's going to be really fun. You spent about 10 years of your career Uh, working as a consultant at Nike and Asus. And you changed your mind and you decided to go from an individual contributor to become a business leader, to become a serial entrepreneur, which you are nowadays. So what was this aha moment that made you change and say, okay, that's my path. That's what I should be doing in my life. There wasn't an aha moment that made me change. I think like any good found it I just saw a personal problem that I wanted to fix for myself which is that I wanted to have a very specific nail design and I couldn't figure out the place to get it done in a way that I wanted it done so I didn't actually have any grand designs on changing my career it was more that my whims changed me so when I opened the salon I had no strategy for making it this huge company or a brand rather. I didn't have a plan. All I knew is that I wanted to have a shop for myself. And to be honest, I still want to have a shop for myself. I love curating spaces and having people come into my space and finding out where they've come from and what they like and how they learnt about us. Like I love being a shopkeeper. It just so happened that that salon really galvanized a mood and a feeling which was around like street culture becoming more mainstream um female backed businesses becoming more mainstream and like in 2009 you know there wasn't instagram or anything like that he you know in 2009 not many people had an iphone everyone was still on a blackberry when i opened the salon so it was such a pivotal time for technological change that i think the business just spoke to a lot of people on those levels. So then I was like, oh, okay, so I'm running a business now. And um, I still struggle with the fact that I run a business because I ultimately am a creative person. Yeah, it's funny that uh, you talked about the things that you learned in 2019, right? And one of the things was kind of to balance this. I'm a founder, but I'm also a CEO and... How do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you make sure that you're actually doing the best you can and being your, the visionary, the starter in your own company? I think that I'm still trying to work it out. And I think that my role will, like most um, roles in startups, will continue to evolve. 
you know, over the next five to 10 years, because you, the balancing act is what I was about to say. And then I was like, is that right? Is you switch up your mode for the needs of the business. But the reason why I was hesitant to say that is because actually you should also be switching up the, your mode to your needs, right? Like, it's not just about the needs of the business. Like, what do I get out of this? And and the beauty is where the Venn diagram of those things cross over. So the business needs and my needs, that beautiful bit in the middle is what I should be focused on. So I feel like figuring out that sweet spot, the center of that Venn diagram is like a constant internal and external struggle, right? The internal struggle of perhaps doing things you don't like for the first time. I've always crafted a career where I've done exactly what I want all the time and only did what I wanted and charged a high price for it. So I was lucky enough to be able to do very little of the thing that I wanted to do to having to do everything and things you might not want to do and things that might seem like a chore, but also the external struggle of what people expect from you and how you show up as a leader as well as being a creator and I actually think that this is very this is even more prevalent for women because we are forced to be brand ambassadors as well as CEOs and actually that's two two huge jobs you know like male founders don't have to have these Instagram accounts with their perfect lives you know it's really odd isn't it like they don't have to show what they ate for dinner or that they're working out or their flower arrangement. We've been tricked into thinking that these are additive tools for the business. Oh, you can get your early business off the ground because of your social profile, your public persona. When in actual fact, I'd rather much build a business model that paid for itself without having to use my lifestyle as a selling tool for it. So yeah, it's a constant, constant battle and struggle. But you know, friction creates energy. Why do you think that you need to be out there on Instagram to build your personal profile and men don't need to? I think that women get backed a lot because of their public profile as a thing that de-risks the investment. So it's like, you know, if you're a, a gym influencer and you want to start a fitness app, it's not necessarily your knowledge of your community. That's one factor, right, that investors are thinking about. But it's also the fact that you have a ready-made audience that you're not having to spend money on Facebook for. So I feel like they think it's less risky, but what they tend not to think, or rather what I'd like to see more women doing is saying, well, Seeing as I'm not going to be spending your venture dollars on Facebook, actually my valuation should be higher. You should be increasing my valuation because I'm coming with this extra benefit that you're not getting. A male founder in the exact same position is going to have to spend the first 20% of the money that you're giving on Facebook and I'm not. So increase my valuation by 20%. But, you know, I just think like it's part of the very subtle, very systemic pressures that we have that distract us from building big businesses. Yeah. And in a way, what you're saying is it's very positive, right? So you you do way more to prove your value, to build a business, but you also can command high valuations because of that. You can just say, look, 
this is what you're investing on. We're not starting from scratch. So in a way, it's a power. It's an extra power and influence that you have, right? We can, but how many people do? This is just something that I've theoretically been thinking about, and I'd like to see more people do that, which is like, okay, cool. If you expect me to be CEO and brand ambassador, maybe I should be paid double, because if not, you need to pay someone else to do that role. It kind of goes back to the unpaid labor that women do. So in the previous um, conversations around this, there's been a lot of a lot of talk about how women do unpaid labor in the home, like childcare, domestic duty. But actually, this is unpaid labor in your startup. I'm going to write a blog post on that. I love that. Seriously, this is like, this is a big insight. It's so true. It is, right? Yeah. We don't have that. But do we, do we put that pressure on ourselves? Because it's like, again, it's like no one is telling us to do that. But we think we should. And where is this coming from, this, that thinking that we should? Yeah, but even when you say no one is telling us to do that, it might not be explicit, but it's implicit, right? It's like all of those tiny little things you need to do to make sure that you don't feel imposter syndrome, make sure you feel like you deserve this. No one tells people to do anything, right? But ideologies make it that we do them regardless. I would say it's there's a very long list of reasons why we might do it that are not always on the surface level, like easy to see. It's almost like saying, my idea and my experience is enough to get this business off the ground. But you're like, no, it can't be my idea and my experience. It has to be my lifestyle and my social following and how many panels I'm invited on and how many podcasts I'm invited on. Like, these are all the things that make me valuable. When in actual fact, I'm like, there are so many people who get backed, I mean men, for whom it's just their idea. It's just their idea and their experience and nothing else. There's no thought leadership, no community, no fan base, no followers. And I think that, that that's something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is I want to be able to expend my energy in a different direction. Because it takes a lot. It's almost like, you know how influencers are? Have, it's a full-time job being an influencer because men won't get this, but taking a selfie probably takes around 20 minutes. I know. Sometimes I'm trying to do a story in the morning and, and it's like, what? Did I just do that for half an hour to try to get the right story? Totally. So it's like all of that content creation takes out of your day from actually being a CEO or thinking about something else and I would really like to not feel this pressure and you know I haven't I deleted Instagram a week ago the app off my phone and I went back on to post um some things in relation to Black Lives Matter and then I deleted it again and it made me think why would I go back on this actually why would I it takes that time could be best spent reading a book I have a pile of essays I want to read next to me on my desk 
You know what I mean? I know what you mean. Do you do you think you are a multipotentialite? So I don't know if you heard of this term before, but there was a TED talk uh, by a lady called Emily Wapnick. And she talks about the pressure of society that we have to choose one thing to do in our lives. And actually there are people, creative people, especially creative people who want to do many things. They want to live multiple lives, right? And then in the past you would call them polymaths. But nowadays it's like that term kind of dissipated. Do you think you are... A multipotentialite? How do you define yourself? I'm actually reading a book about this called Range by, I think it's David Epstein. And it's about the idea that you should expand your range of specialisms because it makes you better at the thing that you decide to do. I've always been like this because I've always been a collector of interests. So one minute I'm into, I don't know, flowers, and then the next I'm into, like, sailing, and then the next I'm into, like, farming, and I'll just, like, be obsessed with that thing and do everything about it, and then I'll, like, leave it and move on to the next thing. And I love it because my brain works, like, very, um, like a spider webby. So there might be something in agriculture that you can then apply to sailing. And if you find those patterns, it gives me such Im immense satisfaction. To It's almost like I've unlocked a secret to the world that nobody else knows because I've seen these things like across multiple different topics and curiosities. So I have always known that I'm good at a lot of things and not particularly excellent at anyone but I quite like that like I don't have an issue with that I've been I've been tried to make people have tried to make me feel bad about that but actually I quite like it I think a lot of people will resonate with you because that there is that pressure that you need to specialize but lateral thinkers are so valuable to society I love it and I couldn't do you know what I think the most important place it needs to be is in government I feel like in government, the lateral thinking is what's missing to create social change. There's not enough knowledge sharing, I think, in the world that we live in today. What I've decided to do now, because I am really focused on making beauty stat work, is I've decided to, and this actually goes full circle to the earlier part of the conversation about deciding what your role is as a CEO. I just thought, I know about myself that I get very bored quickly and I always want to move on to the next project. But I was like, I'm not moving on from beauty stat because I thought, I wonder what I could achieve if I literally gave a decade of my life to something. Because I can, I achieve a lot by doing very little. So I was like, I wonder what I could do if I like literally just committed for 10 years to one thing. And then I thought, whenever I feel restless that I want to start something new I will start it within this company so for example I used to make uh, documentaries when I was in fashion and I found treat your Collins syndrome which is a condition that affects the tissues of the face it creates different face shapes your cheekbones uh, might be higher or lower your eyes might be lower you might not have your ears And I was looking through this hashtag because I found the people with this um, syndrome so inspirational. 
And then I randomly came across a girl who looked incredible because she'd used makeup and beauty to essentially express the journey of having golden heart syndrome in Treach Collins. And I was like, I have to tell her story. And because I used to make films and documentaries as a fashion stylist, the restlessness I might have felt through not being creative, I could express it through doing a small documentary about her for Beauty Stack. In the end, we didn't do it because as we were producing it, coronavirus hit and we couldn't travel or do anything else. But I, that's an example of a way whereby when I feel that I want to jump onto the next thing, I have trained myself to funnel everything through the company. And it's like, well, this film could be legendary. It could win an award. It could be used as an acquisition channel for the film it could be used as a sentiment it could there's so many ways that this film could be used we could screen a documentary and invite 200 beauty professionals or makeup artists about it so you know whereas before I'd be like oh what's next what's next what's next I'm like well now aren't I lucky to be a founder that has this wide range of interests that can expand the way by which I run the company because I because I know it there aren't many CEOs who might have made films in the past, you know? I love that. It's really funny with that, actually, because when the team, because also what I'm learning is that I don't have to do these things. So I can want to make a film, but I don't have to produce the film. I can delegate it to the marketing team to produce. But then the challenge with that, I feel very sorry for them, is because I have made films. I know what a good film looks like. So I'm like, who are these people who you're recommending me? <laughs> I had to show them the films that I'd made in the past, which were so cool, and say, like, guys, these are the levels. Don't show me anything below this level. It has to be better than what I could do by myself, right? Yeah, and, and in a way, exactly. That That's, the again, the advantage of being deep enough into many things. You can find the right team and delegate much better because you've been there. You've done that somehow, even if it was, you know, a couple of years in your lifetime, you will be able to find the right people to help you on the things that you don't enjoy doing. And also knowing what good looks like. It reminds me of when I first started the salon. I did the course on how to do nails because I wanted to know what it was like to be a nail technician. So then when they were complaining that the chess, the, the chairs were bad for their backs, I could completely understand because I know what it's like to sit there all day painting nails and have a bad back at the end of it. Like you can empathize. So doing a little bit of every job in those early days of a startup is not only essential because, you know, you don't have the resources to hire people to do everything, but it's it's really useful for you to know what it requires to do the thing that you want to do. You mentioned that one of your favorite books is from Toffler, so uh, Future Shock. And uh, that actually changed your life and the way that you thought about life when you were a teenager. And I know that in his book, he talks about the impermanence and, you know, the kind of a lot of things happening in a short period of time, which is exactly what you're talking about. How did this book change the way that you see life? And how do you feel that that in the 70s is still so current nowadays in 2020, right? 
do you know what? I haven't even looked at that book for 20 years or more. So it's quite nice, you know, that you say that I'm still talking about the same things because it kind of shows my consistency in my thinking. The way I can explain that book is almost identical to how people feel about reading a book like Sapiens. When I read Sapiens, it was almost like a refresher for that thinking, which was like, civilization's been this, we're only here. Actually, this is how the world was created. Like The chapter I remember actually from 20 years ago that really blew my mind was about service culture and about how you know, 150 years ago, you might have only have seen the people in your village for your entire lifetime. And how today, we come in contact with literally 1000s of people on a daily basis. And that freaked me out. I remember thinking, Oh, yeah, how weird. And then you turn the book over because your brain starts working and thinking about it. Because then the next questions are, well, how must that be affecting me physiologically? Like just to physically feel the energy of other people around me all the time. How does that affect me psychologically? And then you just start thinking how whatever the message of the people in your village was, was your default messaging, right? That's all you ever knew. So then I was thinking, well, what have I learned now from being in contact with thousands of people all the time? And maybe not my family and maybe not my village elders and maybe not people who know me and understand me. So I think like books like that, I'm like, you know, I am a big fan of Sapiens and Homo Deus for the same reasons, is they just open up your field of vision for what you think the world around you is. And it's really funny because you can kind of tell, you can kind of put people into two camps, right? Like, those who understand that they are a speck of dust on the planet or those who think that their world is literally the only world that exists. And um, I do a lot of courses, right? Like I'm quite obsessed with doing a, a course. And the reason why I like doing them, apart from like just learning, is when you do a community college course or a summer school course or, you know, a sailing course, you come in contact with people who you might never come in contact with before and you spend an intense period of time with them. And I did an, an economics with justice course at the London School of Philosophy like a, a couple months ago. And I was with, you know, to my left was like a 75-year-old woman called Penelope. And then there was a Chinese guy who'd been in the army called John and like a 23-year-old wannabe like interior designer and they all have their different perspectives and it's absolutely fascinating to see how other people think and like people will say things and you're like wow isn't it funny that you think that what you've said is the whole truth there's no room for inquiry or freedom for movement here like you know I remember the guy the the older Chinese guy would say stuff like you know because women can't blah 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 and we'd be like whoa whoa, whoa. <laughs> what, is what do you mean and he'd be like you know because back in my day da, da 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 and I remember just thinking oh this is fun and then it's kind of nice to flex your like intellectual arguments about it so 
that future shock opened up my horizons and made me realize that sitting in Wolverhampton, you know, in my household, in my family, there was actually this huge world and all of these things happening in the world out there that was so far removed from what I knew that I couldn't trust my own experience to be the whole truth. Oh, that's so cool, Shah. I love what you're saying. This is so beautiful. It's like when you when you go into a situation that you see the world from different lenses, your your world and your lenses ex- expand ex- exponentially, right? Okay, so I'm going to do two things to wrap it up. I'm going to do a quick fire. Uh, and it's going to be three questions. So define your childhood in one word. Reading. Why? I just remember reading all the time and loving it. Like when, when you said define your childhood in one word, I was thinking playing. I loved playing, but then I would always be in either my little school library or my family are Seventh-day Adventists, so they have a lot of literature about health and the body and, you know, religion. And I just, because I'd be with at my aunt's house waiting for my mum or my granddad, i just be like, oh, well, I'm just going to pick up this book and start reading it to kill the time. And it might be something random like the Reader's Digest Family Physician, but I'd just start reading it because then I'd learn about colds and flu. And, um, yeah, I just felt like reading really transported me to another world. So I remember being alone a lot as a kid, but obviously that's not true. I was came from a very big Jamaican family. But when I think of my most pleasurable moments, they would either be riding my bike alone along the canals, like in nature, or in my bedroom reading something. Nice. <laughs> Second question about the present. Uh, what are you curious about right now that very few people would know about? Right now, I'm very curious about inner child healing. And I'm really interested in a Vipassana retreat, like a silent meditation retreat. And yeah, I spend a lot of time reading about these things. And I am also very curious about, like, living in the countryside. But some people might know because I'm quite obsessed with that. So I would say inner child healing. I read a lot about psychotherapy in general, to be honest. Okay. Future. So you were able to develop a true superpower to change one thing in the world. What would you change? My superpower would be to click my fingers and that all books, films and music were produced equally by men and women. That's it. If I went to my school library, half the science books would be written by men and half of them would be written by women. History books, the same. Maths books, the same. You know? Imagine what an education might be like if you didn't read only William Shakespeare. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, what would your gaze look look like if it wasn't just the male gaze? How would you feel about your body if adverts weren't typically just written by men? How would you feel about music if they weren't all written, if song lyrics weren't written by men to make women feel that being hard done by a lone woman was romanticized. 
In fact, the whole romantics period of literature has defined how we as women treat ourselves and how men treat ourselves. Imagine if that period of literature in the 1800s, the romantic poets and writers were equally men and women. I think the world would look so different if our educational resources were more gender equal. Beautiful, beautiful. Last thing we're going to do is to play a game. And I'm going to give you a fictional character. And she's got like a lifestyle and she does a few things in her life. And she needs your advice on uh, something that she's struggling about. And then at the end of the series, we're going to go through all of the stories that all of the guests uh, went through and kind of gave her advice. And then we see how she's going to pan out in life. <laughs> so Olivia, she, uh, she's 25 years old. She's working in the city in a financial institution. And she decided to go for finance as university because uh, twofold. One, her parents uh, influenced her a lot. But secondly, she felt that it was the right thing to do to earn money very, very young. And then she could do whatever she wanted in her life. But then in the last six months, she's like really struggling. She's like, oh my God, what have I done with my life? This is weird. I want to change so many things here. And all of these people around me do not want to change anything. And I like to follow my curiosity and I like change and I want to provoke change. And I'm just stuck. And then Olivia meets Shaw on the street and says, Shaw, that's where I am right now. What do you tell me? What do you tell Olivia to do? This is like so common. It's actually scary. But the first thing I would say to Olivia is you have to understand that the only person you can control is yourself and you cannot control anything around you in terms of you know, it's expended energy where the most important thing to change first is yourself. Then I would say that she should be rewriting the narratives by which she's living her story, as in she has grown up and been born around the idea that her parents have this path laid out for her. She's following a narrative which tells her that she needs to be financially secure to be able to progress in life. And these are stories that she's acquired. They're not her stories. So I would start by rewriting your own narrative from scratch by understanding what your inner passions and desires are and doing a process like the Ikigai process or any kind of um, framework which allows you to uncover what your true inner desires are. From there, I would also say big thing for me is play games you can win. I wouldn't enter any industry whereby the structure of that industry, the game, was designed to make me fail. So the finance industry is not designed to make women win at that game. It's like me trying to play basketball, but I'm like three foot tall, right? Like that's not a game that's designed for me to win. I would only choose games where I have high probability of winning and finance would not be that. Once I've found my game where I can win, then, and once I've written my own narrative and once I've chosen my own path, then I can decide if I want to bring others along. 
because others come along to change once you've changed your own life once you have to set an example and like lead by example so once olivia has rewritten her narratives found her passion chosen a game that she can win she can then be a pioneer for reconfiguring the finance industry to be more suitable for women amazing amazing thank you she's gonna thank you forever <laughs> and stay tuned to see the the end of the story thank you Sharma Dean it's like oh I really wanted to continue to talk to you forever here thank you so much for your time I know how mega busy you are and how many times you try to create you know to meet and have a conversation and every time that I talk to you I feel super enlightened so thank you Thank you so much. Thanks for believing in me and backing me. Being a supporter means a lot. Thank you for spending your time with me and Sharmadine today. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode and got so much value. And I'd love you to rate us and subscribe if you did. And also, if you know someone who will also enjoy the show, please share it with them. It will mean the world to me. For more information and future episodes, visit hypercurious.fm. Thank you.